All right, well, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26 will be the main text that we find ourselves in today, although we will be discussing a little bit of the background as well. Galatians 5, verse 22 through 26, Paul reads, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. In 1945, there was a song written for a musical. It would be 23 years later where this song would become more famous. It was covered by a group in Liverpool called Jerry and the Pacemakers. This group would cover it in 1963 and make it the most famous. This song became the cover for the football club of Liverpool. They have sung this song at the beginning of every match, and in each match, whether they were winning or losing, this was there to comfort them, to give them power. In the droughts where they hadn't won the English Premier League or the UEFA Championship for years, they were still hearing the words, you'll never walk alone. Sadly, as Christians, we can believe that we're alone at times, but we must remember that we never walk alone. We walk with the Spirit of God in our families to strive for a fruitful life. We walk with the Spirit to display good behavior. Hopefully that our children are self-controlled, that we have peace at home, that we see kindness towards one another, that our husbands are able to not get angry with the kids. Perhaps the greatest comfort for all of us is not what we can do for other Christians around us, but what the Spirit is able to do within us to date me a little bit. (laughs) Understand that true Christians never walk alone. We walk step by step by the Spirit of God when we rely on the aid of the Spirit. And if we don't, we fail. But we've got to get it back, get back up in 2024. And Paul in Galatians 5, 23 through 26 explains the battle that we find every Christian in. We're in a fight, a fight against the flesh. And it's the fruit that we fight with. He gives us nine qualities to bear that give us a step-by-step game plan to get in the fight. We see the introduction covered in Galatians 5, verse 16 through 18. And then we will see the flesh that we're to put off in verses 19 through 21. The fruit we're to walk in in verses 22 through 23. And then finally in verse 24 through 26, the facts. But first... The intro to the fight, we see that Galatians is a book that is written about justification by faith alone. And in chapter 5, we're introduced to this idea, how does justification allow us to live in our daily lives practically? It's a step-by-step instruction manual here for the fruit of the Spirit to live and not let the flesh live in us. So, we are also introduced to to the flesh here. It says in verse 16, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. We're commanded to begin the battle of spiritual habits. That transformation result of that is not carrying out the lust. Carrying out is the same word in Greek that we get the word for mature or complete. You won't complete sin even though it begins in the mind. It won't manifest itself in the outward actions. That's a promise. Verse 17, we see that we're to put off bad fruit. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. There's the battle, the against, the fight, and the spirit against the flesh, for they're in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. As Christians, we're not to have the fruit of hedonism, seeking our own pleasure, but to be pleasurable in our behavior and qualities through the fruit. What isn't the context here in Galatians 5 is, People who are being persecuted by those who are legalistic and people who are being brought down by those who were licentious. There is always a tendency for us Christians to be on the far side of legalism or the far side of hyper grace. We're not to give in to hyper grace with excessive external acts that are not in accord with the Spirit, and we're not to give in to hyper legal. Sorry, that was hyper legalism. Hyper grace, we're not to give into as well, which is excessive liberty of the flesh. As Christians, we're to be transformed and have a different life, and we're to fight the flesh. Well, in verse 19, he tells us what the flesh is, verse 19 through 21. A category of vices, a catalog for us here. It's a lexicon of vices, sexual vices idolatrous worship practices, vices that we can find ourselves dealing with in relationships, even personally what we find struggling within ourselves, things like immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. These are evident, as he says. The deeds of the flesh are evident. That means when they manifest, they're clearly seen. They're plain for everyone to see. And when we fight the battle, we understand that we don't want this flesh to be clearly seen by others or by ourselves. Are my immoral thoughts clearly seen by others in the church? Are my material possessions clearly seen as idolatry in my life? Am I impressed with societal status clearly more than I'm impressed with spiritual progress? Do others clearly see open conflict in my life? Do I clearly compare myself to others? Do my preferences clearly divide groups? And am I clearly on the wrong side of doctrinal differences? These are just some of the questions that we can ask ourselves because ultimately the main focus of our time here today is to put on the positive for 2024, to put on the fruit. We want to get to 22 through 24 and understand that the best way to fight is with the encouragement of the Spirit. We understand that Paul gives us this step-by-step plan, fruit-by-fruit, quality-by-quality. Calvin in quoting on this passage, says, Paul now informs us that all virtues, 
all proper and well-regulated affections proceed from the Spirit. That is, from the grace of God and the renewed nature which we derive from Christ. As if he had said nothing but what is evil comes from man and nothing good comes but from the Holy Spirit. In the sight of God, nothing is pure but what proceeds from the fountain of all purity. Remember, the fountain began in that true vine, and we want true fruit. Each fruit is a quality test to test our spiritual footwork so we march accordingly to the battle charge. So let's get in the fight one step at a time. First, let us walk by love. Love in the Bible is a warm regard and interest for another. It's a sacrificial concern for another. There's no greater example of this than Christ on the cross for us, as we see in the accounts of the Gospels and even considered in Philippians 2. It dominates all fruits as the first and preeminent fruit. We are to be empowered to love one another. It's not the use of love in the sense that it's an attachment to a person or created by closeness, or even sentiment. It's less sentiment and more consideration. It's judicial rather than affection. It's a favorite word of the Apostle John. John 15, verse 9 through 10, he said, Just as the Father had loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. We're to love like Christ. It's a favorite word of Paul as well. We're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, the best commentary on the action of love. And what we see from John and Paul is that love is first and it is greatest. It's not love because we have a common interest or we spent time together or we even share the same last name. It's love because there's only one thing in common, that Christ first loved us. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. You see, it's a reciprocated action of love from a recipient of the ultimate action of love, the grace of God. So we can only love once we know and experience the love of Christ in our own lives. One of my favorite illustrations of this is love from the book of Hosea, a book that teaches us what sacrificial love look like, looks like. And in this marriage between Hosea and Gomer, and we know it had at least two children together, we understand in biblical counseling terms, this marriage was over. If you're going into a counseling case and you're dealing with Hosea and Gomer, you understand that Hosea has the biblical liberty to actually divorce his wife because of his wife's repeated adultery. Yet, the greatest biblical counselor of all time, in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, says Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband. The theology of love here is so rich. The first love is a command from God. The Lord commanded Hosea to love. The second word is a passive participle. And what that means for you is this. 
Gomer is going to be the recipient of a love because her husband never stopped loving her. He didn't stop loving her in her first adulterous affair. He didn't stop loving her in front of the marketplace when she stands there ragged and no one else wants her. He never stopped loving her. In fact, in verse 2, it says, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver. The language here is used that Homer saw her as if she had no defilement. His love was so pure that he saw her as if she was a virgin willing to buy her back again. And ultimately, this was because of God's love for Israel that he was able to do this for his wife. The fruit of love is a love that sees a spoiled marriage and yet is patient and kind and never is provoked to jealousy because they don't take into account the wrong suffered themselves. The fruit of love is one that sees the physical prosperity around them that doesn't fall into it because of the spiritual adultery that they see and they want to stay on course. A spiritual fruit of love doesn't take the unbecoming acts of a spouse and redo them in their own lives. It's not provoked. It rejoices in the truth and forbears all things. This is Christian love. And Hosea, through the biblical counsel of the Lord, gives us an example of just that. Well, we have our first marching order, our first step to walk in. What about joy, beloved? Are you walking in joy? Uses joy here as a general sense. It's not joy because of health, wealth, and happiness. It's joy like we dance in our hearts. We shout for joy. It's a distinguishing characteristic of a Christian. It's ultimately because of the gospel that we're able to have joy. In the first century of paganism, this word was never used in the essence of an internal soul feeling. It's always used, and very rarely uh, might I add that it's used, of a pleasure, but not an internal source. Christ in the New Testament, in John chapter 15 tells us it's a duty of discipleship. In fact, it's such a duty that we're to seek it in highest degree. It's to be full in our lives. We're to be full of joy. We're responsible for living in the fullness of joy. It starts with the gospel because in the word, the word joy, the root of it is charis, which is grace. We cannot live in joy if we haven't received the grace of God. We have received the grace of God, and we celebrate in a festival of joy, 1 Corinthians 5, 8. When we walk by joy, we walk with hope and prayer. Timothy George in the NAC commentary says, Hope is that element of the Christian joy that differentiates it from secular happiness. Joy in this sense of a, of a society is based upon environment and circumstances. But Christian joy, however, is lived out in the midst of suffering. End quote. Joy is forged in the battle between turmoil and truth, despair and hope, danger and doctrine. Joy is the present expression of the heart through anything because there is hope in our future accomplishment of glory. So as we reflect, joy is to be the posture of us in persecution because we know it brings maturity, James 1. It's to be joy because we know God is with us, Luke 2.10 And we are to fix our eyes on Jesus for joyful endurance. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. 
So love, joy, let us take another step to walk by peace. Let me ask you, are you free from anxiety and inner turmoil in your life? Is your heart able to sit down in moments? Is your liver rested? Are you quiet upon the inner self? Luke eleven twenty one 21 actually translates the same word to mean living an undisturbed life. It's spiritual tranquility when your affairs are, affairs are in order so that you are able to deal with war, conflict, and relationships calmly based on your personal relationship with Christ. The Hebrews say, Shalom Aleichem. To mean peace be with you. You say back, Aleichem Shalom. With you be peace. It's euphoria with security. With security. You know, it's not defeating an army or ending world hunger or having an undisturbed economic outlook or having the drought solved. That's not what Paul was referring to. But Paul refers to peace in different areas. Ultimately, there are five ways we can have peace. Vertically, through our justification with God, we may now have peace with God through Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Vertical peace is peace because of salvation, because of positional justification. There's also internal peace, the peace of God, John 4, uh, 14, verse 27. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor fearful. The theological lexicon of the New Testament says of this inner peace, Quite remarkably, that there are no texts evoking the state of soul, of soul of a person to not be troubled by care or having this peace, what we call within. It's only a biblical term because our security in Christ defeats all insecurity outside of Christ. Vertical, internal, what about outward peace? Do we have relational peace today? We're to have peace in church, marriage, family, work, in the world, we're to be ones who pursue peace, Romans 14, 19. Keep peace with one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, 13. And to make peace, Philippians 4, 7. The peace that we bring from Christ reaches all relationships. And we are to have peace in the future. We know the ending. We know what happens, Romans 16, 20. God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. We know that there will be physical peace for a thousand years with Christ on Mount Zion. Any other time a person has been on Mount Zion, it's been messed up. But our peace is in the ultimate Savior. Vertical, internal, outward, future peace. What am I disturbed about today? Is there sin that needs to be dealt with to arrive at that kind of peace for the future? And how can we, as Christians in 2024, create a greater inner tranquility through Christ? Well, let's walk another step with patience. How many of us need to grow in patience in 2024? The word literally comes from the idea of being long-souled, to wait out things. The next three, patience, gentleness, and goodness, are actually related to outward relationships with other people. But patience in particular is a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune or when other people irritate you. 
It's being able to be remaining seated in one's heart, remaining from jumping in the flesh. You're able to wait things out. Restraint is implied. It's especially used in the opposite of anger. Marvin, or sorry, Warren Wearsby quotes this on patience. The Christian who is long-suffering will not avenge himself or wish difficulties on those who oppose him. He will be kind and gentle, even with the most offensive, and will sow goodness where others sow evil. Human nature can never do this on its own. Only the Holy Spirit can. In the Old Testament, it's actually an interesting kind of idiom that's used. The idea is a long nose. Basically, you don't snort in anger at others around you. You don't have a fire burning in inside and look like a dragon on the outside. You are able to forbear, have a long nose, and be able to even win over rulers. Proverbs 25, verse 15 says, By forbearance, a ruler will be persuaded. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8, The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Well, there's three categories we can try to strive for patience in our lives by understanding the patience of God. When you understand Romans 2, 4, that you're not to think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that kindness of God leads you to repentance. When we're patient with others, it's an opportunity for their, pa- for their repentance. Do we let the demonstration of God's patience in our lives extend to others? We also need patience in ministry. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. This isn't tolerance without truth. Don't worry. Are we walking in unity of patience? What about imitating patience? Do you imitate others in patience? Look at 2 Timothy 3.10. Now you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience. James 5.10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They were to look on the examples in the Old Testament and use that and imitate it. Are you imitating someone else in patience today? We want to share the hope we have and share the kindness of God in our lives and be able to understand that his patience with us lets us yield to the spirit and fruit of patience and not the flesh of anger. Who do I need to be more impatient with or patient with and not impatient towards? How will this grow the, immature, or the maturity of the person's life and help them in their repentance? That's the goal. Another step towards a fruitful life. Walk by kindness. Kindness. This is often misunderstood because biblically it's to provide benefit for somebody's life. It's to make use of a situation. It's to bring an effective result out of something by your dealings with them. It's only used in Paul's writing, and it oftentimes means profit, make profit of a situation. In the Old Testament, we see this idea of loving kindness from God, making use of every situation to point to the character of God. Psalm 141, verse 5, Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. 
Do not let my head refuse it. We don't want to refuse the kindness of others, even if it's confrontational. Romans 11, it conveys the opposite of, of being harsh and severe. It talks about Israel being cut off if they don't continue in belief. But through God's grace, they're able to understand his kindness. It was kind for God through Christ in Ephesians 2.7 to offer salvation on his grace and his works and not ours, surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.7. In Matthew 11.30, it's actually used the word to easy, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That was a kind act of the Lord to give us an easy yoke. It's beneficial for you and I. We need to demonstrate more consideration of others not being too severe and coming alongside them in ministry to make it easier without compromise. We need to put off fleshly desires to be angry and clamor and slander like Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 say, but to be kind to one another. How can I make use and be more profitable in the bride of Christ this year? Christ is our motivation of kindness. We reciprocate the kindness of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Christ is the goal of kindness. For people to repent towards Christ, Romans 2, 4. For people to see the display of his riches of kindness, Ephesians 2, 7. We're to walk step by step with the Spirit, and consider others more important than ourselves because of His kind grace that demonstrates kindness and good works, knowing we were once cut off from the kindness of Christ. That propels us forward. Another step that we find ourselves able to take to be bearing fruit in our lives is to walk in goodness. This word I'm particularly excited to share with you today. Because goodness is often misunderstood. It's not exactly kindness. And even in the world, we see a different version of goodness. Goodness in the Bible is accompanied with moral excellence. We want to be generous givers, a good giver. We see that kindness is really more of a benevolence in action, yet goodness combines this idea of both an uprightness of soul and in action reaching out to others to do good even when it's not deserved. MacArthur in the Biblical Doctrine Systematic Theology says this, it exhibits an actively determined capacity to deal with people in the best interest of God's glory, even when confrontation and correction are required. Jerome points out in his works that it's a sterner virtue a zeal for truth which rebukes, corrects, and chastises as Christ when he purged the temple. It only occurs in Paul's writings. It never occurs outside of the Bible. And Paul kind of crystallizes and Christianizes a new word here. In fact, so much so that some early commentators on the beginnings of the New Testament when it was composed thought that Paul used the wrong word. It's so close to the word love and holiness. The word for goodness is agathosine, agathosine. They thought he combined the word of love, agape, 
And the word of holiness, I go sunes, and he meant to use one of those. He made a mistake. <laughs> we know Paul didn't make a mistake. We know that Paul knew one particular truth. Christians can't be good if their love is so tolerant that it's at the expense of holiness. Timothy George says of this, Going the second mile when such magnanimity is not required, it's a deed often expressed done out of goodness of one's heart. We are dealing more so with the ethical characteristic produced in the believer by the Holy Spirit. So goodness is not after tolerance as much as it's after truthfulness. And a new definition arises for you and I. When we arrive at the intersection of love and holiness, we have found Christian goodness. So, we reflect and ask, does the intersection of love and holiness cause us to go the extra mile for others because Christ went all the way to the cross for us? Does the intersection of love and holiness cause me to be a good financial giver? Does the intersection of love and holiness allow me to do good with confrontation of sin, mine, and others? And once we arrive at the intersection of love and holiness in our interactions with others, we've reached Christian goodness. One more step for us is to walk by faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, are you somebody who can be relied upon, trusted, dependable, faithful? Can someone be confident in your life? It's included in the list with a verb in 1 Corinthians 13. Many great examples are found in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. But in the original language of Greek, it was used as the idea of a security, a bond, a mortgage. Somebody could be able to count on. It was stable in the Old Testament. When people said amen, they were saying that's a faithful, stable statement. It's not going to return void. It's dependable. By far, it's used the most in Romans, Hebrews, and Galatians. And biblically, we learn first that God's character is faithful. Romans 3.3 3 is an important reminder to us. What then if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? We also understand that we're to be faithful in persecution, Revelations 1.9. And when martyrdom comes, Revelations 13.10. Can we be faithful in unjust punishment? We're to be faithful to the sufficiency of Scripture, knowing that it's conviction that brings us to that, 2 Timothy 3.14-17. We also understand that faithfulness is not external. It must be accompanied with justice and mercy according to Christ's words to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. It says this, You have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. We get a little formula here from Jesus. Graciousness is seen in justice plus mercy plus faithfulness. But pharisaical law-abiding is seen in external acts, minus justice, minus mercy, and minus faithfulness. They neglected what they shouldn't have. What external acts are we neglecting so that we're not walking as faithful as we should be? Faith is to be accompanied with a clean conscience, 1 Timothy 1.9. When others are tossing about in the storm, we're not shipwrecked, we're stable. We're to understand that faithfulness is ultimately 
from sound teaching. It allows you to be guided in correct thinking, free from error. Titus 1.13, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. Titus 2.2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. We're to be sound in what we teach so that we can be faithful. Are we faithful by holding up all of our teaching to sound intelligence? Or are we prone to assume that Societal influence impacts faithfulness. Just because somebody says it, because they're well-known, does that mean it's correct? Faithful to biblical truth is what we're in the good fight for. We want to be found complete loyal in the end. I thought the good fight of faith is what we want to say. Are we known for being reliable? Could somebody take out a bond of insurance on my theology that matures in 50 years and would it mature with investment and interest? showing that I didn't fear man for that time. I didn't hold fast to what somebody was asking me to do, but I held fast to the word of God. Let us walk in 2024 with that kind of faithfulness. And we continue on one step at a time to walk by gentleness. Gentleness more than any other quality is contrasted with harshness. It's Spoken of as speaking softly, not raising one's voice. We see it appear in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 5. But biblical gentleness at the same time is not cowardness. It's not someone who is unable to deal with conflict. It's not wimpiness. It's not weak. It doesn't lack assertiveness. And for husbands, it's not letting our wives control the leadership. For wives, it's not letting your husbands walk all over you. That's not biblical gentleness. But biblical gentleness is someone who is spirit-led, walking step by step with the conviction of truth so that your interactions will accomplish spiritual results. And in that time, not letting your harsh behavior, your flesh, get in the way of their spiritual growth as you deal with them. Timothy George says in his commentary, gentleness is not incompatible with divisive action and firm conviction. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, was the one who expelled the mercenaries from the temple with a scourge. Basically, it's bringing up sin without bringing up your speech. A few verses later, Paul specifically reminds us of this in Galatians 6.1 when it comes to bringing up sin in other believers' lives and the restoration process of calling out sin. And he says there's qualifications for a biblical counselor in, Gen- in Galatians 6.1. He says in verse 1, Restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. That's not critical, judgmental, or hard. Your personal behavior is not to get in the way of their spiritual progress. So have I been harsh with somebody? Did it hinder their spiritual growth? And do I avoid bringing up sin issues because I'm afraid to do it the wrong way? How can I be more gentle in pursuing the spiritual growth of myself and others by walking in gentleness? We arrive at the last fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of self-control. Walking by self-control, being able to make one's heart obedient, to command your desires, to say no. 
We see an example of this in the Old Testament, Jesus, or sorry, Joseph fleeing temptation. The master's wife looked at him with desire and he didn't give in. He ran. He was self-controlled. Sadly, we see an example lacking of that in Cain killing Abel's life. The Lord said to him, if you do well, sin is crouching at the door. You need to master it. If you do well, you will not give in. Sadly, Cain responded with a lack of self-control. He combined murder with lies, and it led to further depression and consequences. There's a possibility for all of us to be controlled in the spirit. But in the world, a lot of this control is dealt with more in the idea of strength in oneself. But biblically, we see the connotation of the idea of strength over oneself by the power of the spirit. It's different. There are many a men who do not walk by the Spirit of God who have structures of gym regiments and eat well. But that's not self-control by the Spirit. Biblical self-control is an act of Christian character. It's the ability to deny human desires, deny food, drink, sex, and conversation because you see your body as a temple of the Lord. For Christians, this could even mean the amount of coffee we intake or the amount of Netflix we watch. Depending on the Christian, we need to be disciplined more in certain areas than others. Disciplines required for godliness, to restrain ourselves from physical desires. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Without self-control, we can face disqualification. We're to be controlled in our speech. Proverbs 10, or sorry, Proverbs 19, 11, not losing your temper. Proverbs 10, 19 through 21 says, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is his choice silver. Is our control like fine china? Aristotle, picking up on some of this biblical self-control, said this about self-control opposed to anger. Anyone can be angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, in the right way, that is not easy. So we're to have ability to control our mind, girded up, alert, and hopeful, according to 1 Peter 1, verse 13, to control our hearts, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, and to understand that our ultimate example of control was Christ, who never had a word out of place or an action outside of the will of the Father. In fact, it says in Hebrews 14, verse 15, for we do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus controlled his temptations through being ready in private prayer and studying the word and knowing how to respond by being in step with scripture, even when scripture was used out of context. Self-control is sometimes brought up in the idea of boxing the air and never hitting the target or the opponent. And I wonder if we're sometimes running around never able to hit the target with control in our thoughts and actions. How can we discipline our body more? How can we have a healthier fear of God and understand he is always watching. He's omniscient. 
He knows what we do in our private time and in our mind. If others were exposed to our thought life over the last year, would we want it displayed out on stage before others to see? We need the fruit of self-control. So we've covered the fight in the introduction. The fact that there is a fight between flesh and the fruit, the Spirit of God. Now we arrive in verse 24 through 26, and we get to the facts. The facts of this spiritual fight. Verse 24, he says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul, more than any other Bible author, uses this concentration of now to lead to a logical conclusion, a logical indictment of the believer. He's given information, and now he's coming to a factual connection that the battle leads to fruit. He tells us, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul, through the use of this now, says that no one justified by faith alone would walk according to the flesh alone, but one justified by faith alone according to the Spirit alone would accompany their walk with the fruit of the Spirit. You've crucified the flesh. You're positionally justified. It means that Christ has paid your atonement. The flesh will not prevent you from going into eternal life, but it can prevent you from being a abiding and filling of the spirit Christian. Sanctification doesn't get in the way of our justification. And our freedom from the law is not an opportunity for the flesh, but an opportunity for the spirit to take us to further sanctification. We're to have new passions, new affections, not the old ones. And if we're not walking by the spirit of God, we need to understand that verse 26, or verse 25, sorry, verse 26 will happen. But if we walk by the Spirit of God, if we live by the Spirit of God, we'll have sanctification. Verse 25, we see this theme brought up that's similar to what we saw in verse 16. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Paul here is bringing up a logical conclusion of person who's saved. If you have life, if you have salvation, you will have sanctification. If you were regenerated by the Spirit, then let our sanctification march in step by the Spirit. The New English Bible translates this, if the Spirit is the source of our life, let the Spirit also direct our course. Certain statements lead to commanding statements. The fact that we are justified by faith alone must lead to fruitful living. F.F. Bruce says of this verse, living by the Spirit is the root, walking by the Spirit is the fruit. And that fruit is nothing less than the practical reproduction of the Spirit and therefore the conduct of Christ in the lives of his people. Sometimes we limit the idea of the Spirit to just the root but it's the spirit that we are empowered from the root and to display the fruit. We're to bear fruit by the spirit. Let us walk by the spirit. 
Interestingly, this word for walk is different than the word for walk in verse 16. The word for walk here is the word that means steps. It comes from the Greek word stoic. It was borrowed by the stoic philosophers who would try to meet on the steps and engage in philosophy. But this is telling us it's our marching orders. It's our step-by-step instruction. It's saying, get in a row with the Spirit. Fall in line. It was used in Romans 4.12, conveying to fall in line with Abraham's faith. And we could see that this fruit is seen in the footwork of every Christian. How's your spiritual footwork? Do you have step-by-step power from the Spirit of God? Are you empowered by the Spirit of God? Know this, beloved, that when you are biblically patient, as we've defined here today, you are being empowered by the Spirit of God. When you are biblically self-controlled, you are being empowered by the Spirit of God. When you are biblically faithful, you are being empowered by the Spirit of God because the death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit, as Calvin once said. Here also the language brings out this idea of intentionality, that we're to be intentional about these marching orders and being empowered through this way to counter the flesh by producing the Spirit intentionally through this fruit. And if we are not intentional, he warns us in verse 26 that this is what we will see. Boastful, challenging, and envying. Beloved, not much has changed in 500 years. Calvin called these the desires of vainglory. And we see that that still can be the case in any church today. A overabundance of self-glorification, of provoking one another and being jealous. We don't want that. We want to fight individually and corporately to bear fruit, to battle step by step in tune by the power of the Spirit of God. Well, I want to conclude with this final statement. A little bit of a story that lets us understand there's always been a battle, individually and corporately, to free ourselves after we've already been freed (laughs) from legalism and hyper-grace. From hyper-legalism and hyper-grace. And In 1536, we see this story begin in the life of William Farrell and John Calvin, who after the debacle of the placards, and you can look that up in your own time, had to flee to Geneva. As a revolution of the French Huguenots began, they found a beacon of hope in the first two years in Geneva, a place where they could train, train other people to go back into France and impact people with the gospel against the false gospel of the Roman Catholic Church. And when they did this, for two years, it was a haven. They called it the New Jerusalem. But two years later, they found themselves at odds with the Council of Geneva over the issue of communion. And if you learn one thing about Calvin, he was a writer. He wrote more than we would ever read. And he refused to do communion by the way of the council. Now, the council wanted Calvin to only do communion with unleavened bread. Let me ask you, is there anything wrong with doing communion with unleavened bread? 
But it's wrong when you only do communion with unleavened bread. Calvin knew this, that this was putting something definitively where the Bible didn't speak definitively. He refused to do this in the middle of of a service, Celebrating Resurrection Sunday, his church had confliction and divided, and he was kicked out of Geneva for three years. Calvin knew that it was important enough to take a stance. When someone was claiming out of a powerful position to make a definitive statement where the Bible didn't make a definitive statement, to make a hyper-legalistic stance where there was liberty allowed, It is always the overemphasis of law and the overemphasis of liberty that is behind the flesh. Power is not found in the tutor of the law, but by the power of the teacher who teaches us all things. John 14, 25. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this step-by-step instruction to live powerfully by the Spirit in this next year. We pray for that power in the difficult times to come to go back to the truths laid out in your word. Amen.